Welcome to The Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Antidepressants, as we know them as a class of medications, first appeared in the 1950s. Their use has helped countless people, but the research attached to their use has given us incredible insights into the mechanisms of depression. It has also taught us that some mental states that were referred to as depressions do not respond to medications. So the precise definition of a biological versus a non-biological depression, so to speak, is being evolved. We want today to talk about the data from the biological depressions, what we know. And joining us today is psychiatrist Christopher Ticknor, who is on the faculty at the University of Texas in San Antonio. Dr. Ticknor, thank you so much for joining us pleasure to uh, be talking with you today. Let's begin with two questions that patients always ask. What's going on in my brain when I'm depressed and how long do I need to stay on these medications? Where, where would be a good place to start to answer these questions? Well, let's begin with your first question. That is, what is happening in the human brain when people get depressed? And in the last five or six years, we have come up with what I consider a remarkable set of research that tells us exactly what physiologically may be happening in the human brain. We can go back actually to some studies that were done at Yale University by Dr. Bremner, Ron Bremner, who established that there's decreased activity in the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex of the human brain and also the dorsal anterior cingulate iris in patients with what we call MDD, major depressive disorder. And in fact, eventually we also found in studies that were done by Dr. Yvette Shaleen, who is a psychiatrist at Washington University, St. Louis, that there are dramatic changes in the human brain in the areas of the hippocampus and also the amygdala region in patients who have depression. The uniform conclusion that we find in these areas is that there is a disturbance. The one that I find most specific in the research review that I've done is we get a significant decrease in hippocampal volume size in patients who have depression. Now that we know those things, do we see that there are changes with treatment? Do the antidepressants, if I can put it like this, do they normalize the brain again? Do they attempt to restore it to a pre-depression state? Well, you know, that is something that we also are doing and looking at an ongoing research. There's, there's good news and bad news about that, Dr. Strauss. The good news is that soon after prescribing an antidepressant for patients, we do appear to halt both hippocampal atrophy and the disturbance of physiologic functioning in the prefrontal cortex of the human brain. We know that when we catch depression early, we have the opportunity to actually reverse some of those changes, including hippocampal atrophy. The bad news is that when patients have repeated episodes of depression, we believe that there may be some permanent scarring in these areas. There may be some permanent loss of glial cells and we may not be able to get the human brain back to normal physiological functioning. Prove it, but maybe we can't get it back to 100%. And this has sometimes been referred to as the SCAR hypothesis, and I loved when it was phrased in one thing that I read. It said a permanent affection of the brain. You know, we have all these wonderful theories that evolved. You know, remember the first one was the neurotransmitter deficiency hypothesis of depression. One of the second theories of depression was that the postsynaptic receptor site wasn't receiving the message of the available neurotransmitter, and we were able to change the, if you will, the geography of the receptor sites by adding such things in as lithium, thyroid supplements, other, if you will, mood stabilizers as well, and eventually we developed this understanding of such things as prefrontal cortex change, 
hippocampal and amygdal volume loss. And if we believe that these things scar, as we see on autopsies of patients who die with a history of depression or autopsies of individuals who've committed suicide, we actually think we are now discovering the scarring that goes on in these regions. So it raises the question then, if someone has a first onset depression, and especially if there is a depressive element in blood relatives, how long should a person be on an antidepressant? How much might we be able to prevent some of this scarring? We may not even have that data yet. It is an evolving science for sure. I remember in my training 20 years ago, our recommendation from the American Psychiatric Association was that for first episode depression, treat for four to six months. Eventually, about 10 years after that, we changed that to where we were really sort of recommending six to nine months. The most recent guidelines have recommended nine to 12 months. Again, that's for first episode depression. And yet, based on some of the research that's done at places like Yale and also with Dr. Shaleen at Washington University of St. Louis, we believe that first episode depressed patients may actually require 20 to 24 months of antidepressant treatment in order to get hippocampal volume back to normal size. And unfortunately, or I guess I could say fortunately because they're getting some treatment as opposed to not, a lot of the antidepressants are being prescribed by non-psychiatrists and people don't stay on them that long. That is true. I don't remember if it was 2006 or 2007. One study looking at antidepressant prescriptions across the United States, about 80% were prescribed by non-psychiatrists. Now, we have to take into account that not all antidepressants are prescribed for treating depression. Sometimes prescribe them for treating anxiety disorders. There's still many physicians across the country who prescribe certain antidepressants for sleep disorders. And of course, we have a long history of prescribing antidepressants for painful physical symptoms and pain conditions that are not necessarily associated with depression. The, the message here for our audience has to be, when you see patients who have a history of depression, when they particularly have repeated episodes of depression, and perhaps even a family history of depression, it's probably a pretty good idea to get a psychiatry consultation. One of the terms or sets of terms that come up repeatedly is the concept of remission versus response. Could you elaborate on those, please? Because they're very important concepts. Absolutely. And that, again, is something that has changed in just the last eight or 10 years. When we were doing research as recently as 10 or 12 years ago, treatment outcomes and research when you looked at the treatment and scientific evaluation of depression, improvement was defined as a 50% improvement in symptoms. In other words, a 50% response was what was sort of the gold standard 10 and 20 years ago of outcome studies in depression. We realized that when you looked at functional outcomes and also, if you will, preventing relapse, a 50% response was grossly inadequate. When we treat patients successfully into remission, we dramatically prolong the time to relapse in their next episode of depression, meaning that, assume with me hypothetically that you have 100 patients in a research protocol. Half of those patients are successfully treated into remission where they are 100% well. Compare those patients with the 50 patients who are better but not 100% well. And when I say better, Assume with me that the definition of that is one or more mild remaining symptoms of depression. The relapse rates or the time to relapse are dramatically different between the two populations. Of the population that is successfully treated 100% in remission, the average time to relapse in that population is just over four years. Populations that are dramatically better but not 100% well, their time to relapse is 68 weeks. 
big difference. So we have to really understand as clinicians that getting patients 100% well really should now be our standard as opposed to years ago when 50% improvement was the standard. So how do we do that? Is it just giving a larger dose of medication? Is it just staying on the dose for a longer period of time? How do we switch to the better response or the remission, excuse me, the remission? Of course, that's where the science of both medicine and psychiatry becomes an art form, I believe. Two very simple questions to ask our patients when we are treating them for depression are the following. Number one, ask your patients, are you 100% well? If you will, imagine that you're treating a patient, you see this patient for an initial evaluation, they look distraught, they're having crying spells, they're a little bit disheveled, they look physically and emotionally exhausted, they're not sleeping, they have feelings of hopelessness. You start a treatment plan, hopefully a combination of medication management and also the importance of psychotherapy cannot be uh, overemphasized. A patient comes back and sees you maybe one or two visits later and they look dramatically better. If we don't ask the patient, are you 100% well, their improvement may actually, their physical improvement, what they report to us, they only represent a 50% improvement or 75% improvement. So ask them if they're 100% well. The second question I ask every patient is the following. Do you enjoy your life and the activities that bring you pleasure as much now as you did before you got depressed? Because patients are able to tell you if they've got the joy back in their life, the enthusiasm, the hobbies, the love for their families, spouses, children, and so on. And if they tell you, you know, I am definitely better, Dr. Tickner, but you know, I'm not enjoying watching my kids play their athletic events and I don't enjoy my favorite television programs as much as I used to. That's a patient who's telling you they are not quite yet into remission. And the other part of your question, I think, Dr. Strauss, is what do we do to get them there? And the answer is keep trying, keep moving forward. If the patient is not able to report that they're 100% well, or if you're using a diagnostic instrument in your office, be it the Beck Depression Inventory, the Zoom Depression Scale, there are literally a dozen of them out there. The PHQ-9 is a very reliable instrument. Use it at baseline and use it at follow-up to be sure your patients get into remission. If they're not into remission with one medication at a particular dosage, the first thing we recommend, of course, is maximize the dosage. If that doesn't work, we're now leaning towards recommending augmentation strategies where we may combine two agents, where we add in a medication like modafinil or armodafinil. We may add in lithium augmentation, a mood stabilizer such as lamictal, particularly if we suspect the patient is a cycling recurrent depressed patient. And of course, there's some controversy involving particular agents in this class, but every atypical antipsychotic added into an antidepressant can actually make the antidepressant work better. Does it become more difficult? Is it more of a clinical challenge if it is the third or fourth major depression and people have stopped taking their medicines because they felt better? It was a certain period of time. They said, no more medicines. I'm tired of it. And then six months later, a year later, they come back and they say, you know, doctor, this is my fifth depression. Help me again. Is it harder to get him into response and then into remission? In every well-designed, methodologically, if you will, strongly powered study, more episodes of depression translate into a worse prognosis. That's why I use the magic number three. When I give grand rounds and presentations around the country, I ask my audiences to remember one number, and that number is the number three. In my practice, anecdotally, I'll share with you that for first episode depressed patients, 
If you accept the APA guidelines, the recommendation is one year of treatment. Dr. Shaleen's work would suggest that perhaps first-episode depressed patients should stay on their antidepressants for two years. In my practice, if I see a patient and this is their second episode of depression, I recommend they stay on their antidepressant for three to five years. And the magic number, again, is the number three. If we see patients who are experiencing a third or more episode of depression, I recommend they stay on their antidepressant every day for the rest of their life. And if I may for this audience, let me, let me emphasize why that is. That is a bold recommendation. And, you know, it's hard to get patients to accept that they'll be on any medication for the rest of their life. But I share with my patients this information. There was a study published some years ago, and we refer to it as the Danish study. It looked at every person in the country of Denmark who was hospitalized for depression between 1970 and the year 2000. Patients who had depression were much more likely to have dementia later in life. And theoretically, again, and and I know this is an evolving science, but we believe that the patient who has particularly repeated episodes of depression may sustain that hippocampal scarring that we talked about, and that may be one mechanism of action whereby patients are much more likely to develop dementia later in life simply because they have a history of depression. Intriguing and fascinating and and humbling in a lot of ways. It it makes us sit back and think about what we're doing with our patients in the long run. I'll actually be a little more frank with you, Dr. Strauss. It is. It's something that can be humbling, but I think it's also frightening for us as clinicians and our patients who realize that the failure to treat depression adequately and not able to convince our patients to stay on their medications when they're recommended that they stay on antidepressants for sufficient periods of time may actually lead to a much higher incidence of dementia later in life for these patients. That is clearly something that uh, we can't walk away from. We've really got to make it part of our formula when we come to a treatment decision. Clearly, we have to. Agreed. Now, among other things new to the treatment of depression in the last 10, 15 years is an understanding of a substance called BDNF, fascinating material that sometimes has been called the mother milk of the brain. Could you tell us a little bit about what BDNF is, please? BDNF is an abbreviation for brain-derived neurotrophic factor. For quite some time, we have been aware that there are substantial numbers of these neurotrophic factors in the human brain. Neurotrophic factors, and I love your description as the mother's milk of, if you will, positive brain health. (laughs) I sometimes refer to it as brain fertilizer. It keeps the garden growing. It keeps the neurons flourishing, and it also assists, for example, in the repair of aging or withering neurons. Brain-derived neurotrophic factor levels drop precipitously in patients who suffer from depression, anxiety, OCD, and also precipitously in patients who suffer trauma and are developing post-traumatic stress disorder. You cannot have a healthy human brain. You cannot enjoy life. You cannot be, if you will, insulated from depression and anxiety if you do not have good levels of brain-derived neurotrophic factor. One of the things that we have established with all antidepressants, and I do say, you know, without, if you will, discrimination across the board, they increase BDNF levels within weeks of reaching therapeutic prescribing levels. But if a person hasn't been on it long enough or it's a repeated depression, perhaps the BDNF might not be able to undo the scar that we talked about. And again, I'm not saying this with hard science yet, but these are the sort of thoughts that go through our minds when we come up with a treatment recommendation. Interesting. It is. 
So the question then is how do we get the average patient who might be having some side effects to medications, how do we get them to stay on these medications long enough to hopefully prevent these longer-term problems? This is a, a daily clinical challenge for most of us. In both my, my research and also in my clinical practice, I find it is perhaps one of our greatest challenges. And it begins with one simple word, education. If we are simply trying to prescribe medicines and convince our patients to stay on their medicines in order to address the symptoms today, most patients, much like the patient who has strep throat, where it's recommended they take an antibiotic for seven or ten days, three days later the pain is gone, they stop taking their antibiotic. Antidepressants are really no different. When patients start to feel that they're sleeping better, they're having fewer crime spells, they feel an improvement in their hopefulness and perhaps even their energy level and their productivity, they tend to get lazy about taking their medications. And a lot of that is because of the potential for side effects, some degree that may also involve the cost of the medication. But if we can educate our patients that without taking these medicines, prematurely stopping them, they're much more likely to have early relapse. And if they have more than one or two episodes of depression, it puts them into a significantly higher risk category for dementia, early dementia later in life. Most patients will, will sit up and take notice of that. So we have to really educate the patients that this is not just a temporary one-time experience for most patients with depression. It's something that tends to be a recurrent medical illness that can trouble them throughout life. We're lucky that it's not a, as big a problem as it once was, but part of the education is to take away the stigma of having a psychiatric disorder. I started my uh, faculty appointments and practice back in 1986, coming up on 25 years. And I do believe that we have done an amazing job of helping people to talk more freely about emotional conditions. We know that 17%, 18% of the U.S. population sometime in their lifetime will have a depression. And we're also raising a generation, I think, of young adults and adolescents and children who are much more comfortable talking about emotional conditions as well. So we have overcome a lot of the stigma. And yet at the same time, there are many both cultural and age-related groups that still refuse to really talk about that they may have depression. So in many ways, on many dimensions, we are better than we were. We still have work to do. Dr. Christopher Ticknor is a psychiatrist associated with the University of Texas in San Antonio. Thank you very much for being with us, sir. This has been very interesting and very helpful information. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Strauss.